Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. The Bob Seska Show. Bob Seska. Bob Seska. You really are sick. The Bob Seska Show. From our nation's capital, it is Wednesday, May 3, 2023, and this is the Bob Seska Interview on the Sexy Liberal Podcast Network. Hi, I'm Bob. Hello, Bob. Hi, day 833 of the Biden-Harris administration, 552 days until the 24 presidential election. You can find me on Instagram, the Bob Seska. That's my handle. That's where I'm at. Twitter, Bob Seska underscore go. Spoutable, Bob Seska. And, of course, our Patreon page is bobseskashow.com. All right, it's Greg Mitchell Day on the podcast. Greg's been here several times before to talk about his one-of-a-kind documentaries about media censorship and little-known chapters in American history. This time we're talking about Greg's latest project called Memorial Day Massacre, Workers Die, Film Buried. It's about an unprecedented episode of police violence against striking steelworkers in Chicago. Ten workers were murdered by cops and many more were wounded. And then the newsreel footage got suppressed. The book is out now. Link in the description and the documentary premieres online on KCET in L.A. on May 6th, followed by PBS stations across the country after that. It's a remarkable story, and Greg's here to dig right into it. Meantime, think about supporting this fully independent podcast by subscribing to our Patreon page at bobseskashow.com. Okay, this is Greg Mitchell talking about the Memorial Day Massacre. More fun, more music, the Bob Seska Show. It's kind of amazing, Greg. You always seem to land on these historic events that never quite made it into the public consciousness. I mean, how do you do this? I mean, do you have a process for landing on these kind of forgotten chapters of history? Uh, well, I don't really have a process. I think one thing that unites uh, so much of my my work or my career, if, if you will, uh, through uh, you know more than a dozen books now and now three films is uh, obsessed with uh, media cover-ups or official cover-ups, I guess. Um, yeah, even yeah. Many, my writing at, for magazines and going way, way back now, um, for whatever reason, maybe it was Watergate or, or however I grew up <laughs> uh, uh, when I was growing up or whatever, but uh, it seems like uh, without intentionally going out of my way, uh, I seem to gravitate towards you know, media criticism, but, you know, uh, media cover-ups, uh, official cover-ups, a film, almost every uh, everything that I've written about uh, at length in books uh, and now in films, uh, in my own films, relates to some sort of uh, film or movie or footage cover-up. And um, so, I, I don't know, I guess when I see certain stories like this, it just, uh, it's right in my wheelhouse. It's incredible that this story, given the level of carnage, uh, hasn't received more attention. And that's what's always crazy to me, Greg. Whenever I hear about your latest project, I mean, why hasn't anyone heard about this before? Ten people were gunned down by police in cold blood. And yet it really doesn't make uh, certainly not chapters in history books that are accessible by K through 12, um, maybe in college. Certainly, I think uh, in academia, a lot of people get exposed to things like this. But I think generally speaking, it's, you know, sort of lost to history. Well, it's, uh, that's exactly the reaction I often have to these stories is why haven't I heard about this? 
and uh, and even in some cases, it's in areas that I, I thought I knew a lot about or I had been exposed to a lot. So when when you when you think you're kind of in touch with certain parts of history or or, or current current events, and yet something kind of shocks you, mm -hmm. and uh, you know it, it almost something that was kind of a media an official cover-up at the time becomes almost a historical cover-up. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, like you said, where is this in the in the histories and the popular culture, uh, 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 things like that? So, um, I, I, yeah, it's, it's your reaction is much, much like mine, but I, you know, it, it probably sparks you to do certain programs and it sparks me to consider doing a book or a or now a, now a film. So let's get into the Memorial Day Massacre. 1937, it was the year before my dad was born, and uh, Republic Steelworkers went on strike in Chicago. What happened that led up to this uh, police massacre? Well, in a nutshell, there, of course, there's so much history here with oh, the, yeah. the, the Depression. And uh, starting around 1935, there was a great explosion in labor actions, which had been kind of dormant for quite a while. Mm. And so you had great labor uh, uh, strikes and, and ferment around the country, uh, most famously with General Motors and Ford. And But it really touched all sorts of areas of, uh, from, of America, from farm workers to you know, shop workers and so forth. So mm -hmm. it was this incredible surge in union organizing, often quite successful. Um, and 1936, there was the, the wave of sit-down strikes, uh, which also were, were kind of uh, usually successful. And so we got up into 1937 and uh, the first part of the year, Again, I'm trying to do this in a nutshell, but the, the, the giants, <laughs> yeah. the biggest steel company, U.S. Steel, uh, signed a contract with um, with the new uh, steelworkers union. Mm -hmm. uh, but the sm smaller, but by no means small, uh, other steel com companies um, refused to even recognize the union. So in mm -hmm. uh, late May 1937, um, the 70,000 workers at, at the, this, these uh, steel plants across the Midwest and uh, Pennsylvania uh, went on strike. And um, in Chicago, the, the the giant plant was Republic Steel in South Chicago. And they um, so the workers went on strike. They tried to picket. The uh, police busted a bunch of heads. And so um, the uh, union called for a community picnic on Memorial Day. Uh, where they would, you know, gather support, uh, big community turnout. Uh, uh, women and children came. There was, you know, barbecue and baseball. And hmm. it was just like a, a giant, fun uh, Memorial Day picnic. And um, so there were so many people came, like uh, maybe up to 1,500, that the uh, organizers said, well, let's, uh, let's march towards the plant uh, and try to set up a picket outside the plant, which was about three blocks away across a great prairie. And, uh, you know, just go and, you know, women and children, and we'll just march, try to march over there and have a legal, what, what would have been a legal picket, um, you know, outside the plant, you know, the you know, 100 yards from the plant or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so they were met, uh, met by a huge... Uh, contingent of police when they got halfway across this prairie. Who called in the cops? Were they just they just came on their own volition? Like they heard about this uh, the strike that was happening and they just showed up, yeah. or was it Republic Steel, the people inside who decided, okay, we got to bring in the cops to break this up? Yeah, well, a little of both. I mean, yeah. the the police, of course, uh, uh, you know, in, in, against strikers who are you know alleged allegedly were radicals and communists and so forth. Mm -hmm. So they already were, uh, and, and they already had busted heads a couple nights before. Yeah. Uh, so they were going to be there no matter what, but re they were also in bed with Republic steel. In fact, they'd set up their headquarters for the, uh, the day inside the gates of Republic steel. <laughs> wow. As, I sh as we see in the film, you know, in the, in the, in the film has uh, my film has footage of all this, all the, what was going on, inside the plant and the police gathering and and the march beginning and so forth. And of course my book uh, I'll, I'll gets much more into that. Mm -hmm. But they were, uh, you know, they're very much in bed with Republic. In fact, Republic gave them, um, besides their usual equipment, gave them ax handles to use 
uh, that day if they needed to and gave them tear gas. The police did not have their own tear gas. The Republic gave them tear gas. So wait, no, wait, wait, what is, what is Republic steel doing with tear gas? Like what, why was that? Was that they, just on well, hand or they access it somehow? Yeah. Well, they, they were as, as I show in the film and in the book, they were the largest uh, literally. And I have the documents, which I, I show uh-huh. uh, they were the largest purchasers of tear gas in the entire country in the preceding year. And they basically stocked all their plants for, for eventualities like this. Wow. Uh, and of course, they would then give it to the police. So, so the so the scenario is, uh, you know, marchers across the prairie, police stop them, and they engage in five or ten minutes of heated discussion, but seemingly, um, you know, not leading to anything that violent. You know, they're just it's kind of a standoff. It's a Sunday. It's still kind of a picnic crowd. You know, <laughs> nicely dressed. You know, women and children are around. You know, um, and um, and now I'll just I, I, I'll get back to this, but I'll, we also have to the really one of the focuses of the film and the book is that there was a cameraman from Paramount News on the scene hmm. capturing all this in his camera. So we'll we'll get back to that in a little okay. bit. Okay. Yeah. There, there's a Paramount News is a major newsreel, and there's a, a veteran cameraman there capturing the, you know, the police and the marchers debating and so forth. Okay. So then something happens. And uh, the next thing you know, the police are firing tear gas and firing pistols. And uh, we see in this footage, uh, the marchers all (laughs) turning to flee in panic um, across, you know, back across the prairie and police firing their pistols point blank and then, you know, in the distance at the retreating marchers who are doing nothing but running away. Wow. Uh, And um, this is all captured on the film. And, um, uh, you know, in in the end, again, jumping ahead a little bit, they they would have shot 40, shot and wounded 40 people, including an 11 year old boy and uh, killed uh, 10 mm-hmm. of the, this is a combination of strike workers and just, and, uh, you know, active union activists and so forth. Um, and would kill 10, including a 17 year old, uh, youth. Um, uh, and then they would, uh, when they'd stop firing, they waded into the retreating crowd and beating them on the head with the ax handles and the clubs all caught on camera. Uh, just vicious beatings of defenseless people who are including women who are running away. <laughs> yeah. Well, they're yeah. running away because they're caught. Yeah. And of course they're tripping and falling and, and, and some of them are, are already wounded and they're getting clubbed in the head. And uh, you know, again, absolutely no defense for it. You know, they were, um, you know, they weren't fighting back. They weren't doing anything. So, um, so the whole sequence of shooting the guns and then clubbing, uh, totally indefensible. And then the third uh, part of this is that the police then did not call ambulances. They did not have anyone on hand to do first aid. And uh, what they did was they would, uh, rather, rather than try to help people, they lug them, push them, uh, pick them up and threw them into paddy wagons mm-hmm. uh, under arrest and would be taken uh, many of them, you know, dead or dying, uh, to distant hospitals, including you know, primarily a prison hospital. So they were sort of they were arrested for they were arrested for being <laughs> wounded, I guess, and uh, and taken away. So the yeah. so you have this this three horrible things all all captured: the sh- the shooting, the beating, and then the total disinterest in helping the uh, the injured. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, and again, this is documented in the footage, which we you know we'll we'll get to. But yeah, uh, what uh, and what what's uh, uh, I mean, not only do I show this in in my my film, but in the book, my my book is the first oral history of this tragedy, and uh, so it includes in a very lively you know sad way. Um, the eyewitness accounts of uh, of so many of those of the activists and, and those who were wounded, plus um, you know some more famous observers who were there, 
And um, uh, so it's all documented almost minute by minute. If you like those kind of uh, books and stories where you get a famous event or something, yeah, you kind of can see it unfold in the words of the witnesses. Um, this is this this is the kind of uh, it'll be right up your alley. Is it uh, Paramount that gathered some of this testimony that you're referring to, or was it uh, just a number of different sources that you uh, yeah, gathered no. all this information from? Yeah, right. the The book is 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 largely made up of, uh, and again, jumping ahead a little bit, testimony that many of these people gave mm-hmm. at the uh, sensational Senate hearings. Okay, that that came. Uh, and a um, actually a document, uh, an eight-part documentary that aired on PBS in 1993 uh, called "The Great Depression," mm. um, and the, I got the transcripts for the interview. So the, only a tiny, uh, you know, a part of one part of one episode was based on this Memorial Day massacre, um, and um, I got transcripts for all the interviews, including with people like Gore Vidal. And um, the um, uh, I actually worked on that series. In fact, they had one whole episode about a subject we talked about last year, my previous PBS film on Upton Sinclair's race for governor of California yeah. in 1934. And that was the subject of one of the episodes. And so I was very familiar with this program. And so I got permission to, uh, quote, you know, use a great deal from these un, you know, unseen tra- transcripts. Um, so it's so basically the the in the book that the, this eyewitness testimony and commentary is uh, is all first person from direct sources that people have you know that people had uh, said for, with little notice in the past. Was there uh, something that touched off the firing, or did the police just act on their own volition? Was there something that happened, uh, maybe something that they said that the cops said happened that didn't really happen? Something along those lines. Well, what the cops said happened was uh, someone fired, or several people fired from the crowd, which was you know, fired pistols from the car crowd, which was okay. completely false. Mm-hmm. Now, what is what appears to be partly true is that. Um, while all this arguing was going on and the police were pushing and threatening to do all sorts of things, uh, some people from the back of the crowd threw a few stones. Uh, someone apparently threw a tree branch that, you know, sailed over the police heads or something. Uh, there was some pushing going on, um, but there was nothing that particularly triggered any, you know, an attack on the police or, or people were trying to march through the crowd or people were throwing uh, bricks or anything like this. But what happened, uh, so so I think what happened was the police panicked, the police were trigger, trigger happy. Mm. They gave like a five-minute warning, you know, you must disperse. And when the crowd did not disperse, they said, okay, <laughs> we'll, we'll get you to disperse. And, um, you know, it probably one cop or two cops fired and then the rest joined in. I, I it, it's, you know, it's impossible to say, but there, there definitely was – very little provocation to, considering what what happened afterwards. Yeah, it seems um, to me it, it kind of tickles my conspiracy theory uh, cortex. <laughs> I kind of yeah. I, I hear about this and I wonder, I think about the DNC in 68 and how there were instigators who uh, mm-hmm. were uh, you know, touching off some of the police violence and maybe not the protesters themselves, but infiltrators. Pat Buchanan famously talked about things like that. And so with this story, I was I, in that crowd. I was in that crowd, by the way, in 68, but I, and I, wow, I was not so, a, uh, oh my God. I was not an instigator. I was not an instigator. <laughs> right. But I remember reading about Pat Buchanan sitting in one of the hotel room windows and just uh, making phone calls and getting people to go in and, and uh, inflame the cops to deliberately yeah. antagonize the cops so that they would start to get violent and then the pro- everything would fly wildly out of hand as i'm sure yeah. you witnessed well there were some there were some uh, captured in this footage yeah uh were uh, obvious uh plain well I'll say plain clothes people from republic steel with their with axe handles wow, who were God. also wading it wading into the crowd and mm. hitting people the head um whether they were they were uh you know pushing the cops to do this um can't really say but uh, mm. they were there definitely there in the police crowd and of course there always was 
some level of uh, of uh, you know instigators, uh, infiltrators, in, a, in any uh, yeah. protest protest, as you know, who may be pushing protesters to uh, you know do violent things. So, uh, but uh, I don't know. But you know that the the bottom line is that the next day, um, virtually every newspaper, both local and as far as away as the New York Times endorsed the police uh, the, the police uh, uh, explanation which of course we've seen thousands of times th- since yeah yeah but they totally the headlines were all you know uh, 10 killed in riot you know mob attacks police you know uh, uh, dozens injured you know or you mm-hmm. know uh, all totally buying the police even down to the Demonstrators probably were the first to fire shots. Uh, there was the, the line that these people who were shot in the back were actually shot by the protesters who were firing at the police um, and so forth. So uh, the immediate reaction in the in the media and the press was to buy the police explanation. And, um, you know, this was going to really go away. Uh, but then there was an aftermath that we can we can get to. So Paramount has this footage, and uh, is this the next step where we're, we're talking about uh, this raw footage and the decision to, yeah. what, initially right. included in a newsreel? I think that was the, the first thought, like, okay, we're going we're gonna to start running with this. And then, yeah. so walk me through that process, the process at, at Paramount, where they have, okay. they have to decide whether to make this public. Right. Well, uh, they had a an ace cameraman on the scene, Orlando Lippert, who I think had just come from the uh, Indianapolis 500 or something, uh, on the scene, and uh, and the footage, which you you'll see at length in the film, um, is is incredibly dramatic. I mean, it, it would have been among the most historic and significant and dramatic ever. Yeah, captured. I mean, you you see the police firing, you see the the uh, crowd trying to get out of the way, more firing, and then the the whole wave of beatings, and the and then the lack, the callousness afterwards, where people are being being uh, dragged to paddy wagons and thrown in, and you know women with blood uh, flowing down their faces and so forth. So it's incredible footage. That's that's the first thing you have to say. It's like it's like the footage is like nothing anyone's ever seen, uh, yeah. even to this day, really. Um, is it the, and, really the first of its kind, wasn't it? Because some earlier breakups of protests, I think there were protesting, uh, maybe it was World War One veterans who didn't get their pension yeah, the bonus, and were broken. The yeah, the bonus, yeah, the bonus, bonus march. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I don't know that any of that was filmed, um, but was this the, the first of its kind where we actually see this going on? Well, newsreels for a few years, and of course, this is sort of a new phenomenon, and yeah. I suppose we should... If we have time, we should back up and say how important newsreels <laughs> were at the time because the yeah. movies were incredibly popular and everyone was going to movies. There was no TV and uh, and newsreels were shown before every movie and they were incredibly popular and influential. So yeah. uh, that 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 needs to be said. Um, but they were also were fairly new. Uh, and um, uh, but they had there had been footage to this point. Of violence at the you know at the Ford the great Ford protest at Ford and General Motors and scattered places where there were scenes and I some of them are again are in my film of uh, you know police firing tear gas police uh, whacking some workers uh, there certainly had been some violence before I think two were killed and or four were killed at Ford a few years earlier and. I think two were killed in Youngstown. It's not that this was, uh, I mean, the scale of this uh, Memorial Day massacre was, you know, the worst ever uh, to this day. Uh, but there had been other violence and some of it had been captured, but not in not at such close hand and such beginning to end and uh, nothing like the footage that was captured by Paramount. And in fact, uh, Paramount created in the days after a uh, four-minute, uh, you'd really more like a movie short. It was it was an entire it was an entire newsreel. You might have devoted to this, um, 
And the narrator took a very, you might say, pro-police uh, line. <laughs> but the footage, you know, uh, had to show the police, you know, attacking and firing and uh, clubbing and, and and the aftermath. So the, the footage itself said one thing and the narrator was trying to say something else. But they, you know, created it, but they then self-suppressed it. They did not release it. Uh, they uh, kept it in the can and, uh, and it was not, no one was going to hear about it further, but then, uh, kind of word seeped out that this footage existed. Uh, and the, uh, Senate subcommittee headed by Robert LaFollette, as you may know, that name as mm -hmm. a great progressive from Wisconsin, yeah. um, decided to consider having a hearing. And so they subpoenaed the footage um they received the footage and uh one of the staffers leaked it to one of the leading investigative reporters of the time a guy named paul anderson mm -hmm. who then wrote uh a couple major pieces for the st louis post dispatch which were then reprinted in the new york times and a few other places uh talking for the first time about what was actually on this footage uh, and of course, it was like a bombshell because it was well. What, this isn't what we heard. Yeah, know? yeah. He's ta and he talked to some of the victims and you know interviewed some of the people and uh, should have won the Pulitzer really. Uh, and um, so suddenly uh, the word was out on what was on this footage, and so Paramount then created a second film, and and, I, and again refused to release it. And uh, when they were queried, <laughs> queried why they are burying this footage, a spokesman said, you know, we're afraid this will set off riots in the theaters and, you know, there'll be more more people that get hurt. So why did now, they, why did they go? Why, why did they go ahead with a second one real quick? Well, I think they felt the, uh, the they felt they uh, the second one was a little and I've seen all them. Yeah one of the first people to see all three versions and all three are uh, are used in the film and and talked about it in the book um and um i think uh, the second one's a little more even-handed and i mm -hmm. think they sort of felt well maybe if we do it a little more even-handed we can you know put it out there but again they failed to put it out there now right right which doesn't make possible. any sense to make it make a second reel and then not yeah. put it out anyway just like yeah. the first one it's, it's like a right. waste of time but yeah, yeah. but now so now you you might say Paramount was actually deciding on their own. This mm -hmm. this will be very dangerous if we put out there. Yeah. In reality, and especially, and again, it's not really even a conspiracy. You have to diffuse your your head. You might say they probably were under pressure from Chicago officials and police officials and all sorts of people, maybe even Washington officials, to not put this out because it was so negative about the police and could and could inflame not necessarily cause riots in the theaters which was the excuse but it certainly could inflame uh pro-union people around the country so the second one is also buried uh so the follow goes ahead with his hearings which is the end of june and the beginning of july so it's a month or so after the massacre and uh, uh being a good progressive he uh well let's i don't say he slants it he he definitely uh uh brings out the uh, uh the uh argument against the police he he makes all the top police people testify and it's you know it's frankly kind of embarrassing some of the things they say about the uh for example workers getting shot in the back by their own people uh someone saying uh he, he thought this was the, the workers were high in marijuana <laughs> Uh, you, you could look in their eyes and say they're high in marijuana. Uh, Mexicans, Mexicans. It was it's a, the Mexicans in the crowd are the ones who are to blame. Uh, all yeah, just really embarrassing things, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, and, um, and and anyway, again to make a long story short, near the end of the hearings, which went very badly for the police, um, they screened the uh, they screened the Paramount footage for the first time. And even did it in slow motion, which was very rare at that time. And, and of course, the press is widely covering this. This is now a sensational story. 
and uh, they they see the footage for the first time, and uh, and so now the coverage really turns uh, not not completely because you still have uh, the Chicago Tribune and all sorts of you know conservative papers like it'd be like Fox News today. Mm-hmm. They just accept this, you know, the camera. The camera is lying. You know, before they wanted to embrace what the camera was showing, and now the camera is lying. Yeah, so it's just like Tucker Carlson taking the insurrection footage and finding yeah, the moments exactly. when nothing was yeah. happening. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They would have done if they if if uh, some of this media had to, you know if it was like TV then that's exactly what they would have done. They would yeah. have taken the same footage and showed uh, showed how it was all the protesters' fault. But in any case, um, so now. Um, Paramount, I guess, really felt they had they had to release the footage a month later, more than a month later. So they do a third newsreel, and uh, they finally put that out. They finally distribute that, and um, you know they claim this is unedited and uh, this is the whole story. But of course, they drop the first fifteen seconds, which show the police firing at the demonstrators while <laughs> while claiming they're showing the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and. Um, but in any case, it, you know, okay, the footage is finally out there, um, although edited. And um, so what happens? Yeah, it's shown in New York and uh, the crowd, you know, crowd hisses and boos and things like that. It's shown around the country in different places. But even after all this, it is banned in Chicago. It's banned in St. Louis. It's banned even in Massachusetts from being screened. And and it's also being banned by uh, entire some entire theater chains who won't let it be distributed to their their theaters. So it does emerges. It does emerge. You know, it is seen by many. Mm-hmm. But even after all this, it is still uh, you know banned in many parts of the country. Um, and um, so uh, three weeks later, the La Follette committee issues its report, which I, in my book, I reprint uh, many pages of. Mm-hmm. In the appendix, there's an appendix in the book, after all the oral histories, um, where I reprint a, a large part of the La Follette report. And it really lays it out step by step and perfectly persuasive and very bad for the for the police. Uh, nevertheless, there is a coroner's jury in Chicago which concludes that uh, this was justifiable homicide. All 10 deaths were, you know, quote, unquote, justifiable homicide. Um, and uh, how, wait, how did they reach that conclusion? Like, what, what kind of bullshit led them down you know, that road? Yeah, you know, uh, there was a, you know, there was a conflict and police uh, in self-defense or police thought they were protecting the plant and Ugh. they fired. and But they did. They had to admit that they, everyone was killed by a police bullet. And they took the testimony that the vast majority were shot in the back or in the side. Uh, so there was really no doubt that the basic story, that it was all from the police and that people were shot in the back as they fled, was basically true. Uh, nevertheless, they, had, they came to that conclusion. And uh, so no police, not a single police, was uh, punished. Uh, but you had dozens of the demonstrators who were arrested, who had been arrested and were, were fined, you know, went, were in jail for any, anywhere from two days to two weeks mm-hmm. uh, and were, you know, had to uh, eventually pleaded guilty and were fined, you know, some, some. Um, so, um, so that was the immediate uh, kind of thing. And then, uh, and, and then workers of the strike had been, sort of broken uh, because of all this. And so workers started returning to work. And uh, so it certainly seemed like a short-term loss, but there were some long-term gains that we that we can get to if you want. Okay, today's show is brought to you by the After Party Podcast on our Patreon page. You know, there's another show that we do at the end of the week. You know, you got the Tuesday show, you got the Wednesday show, which is this one, and the Thursday show. But there's a fourth show that we record every week, me and Kimberly Johnson, who I'm having sex with, by the way. (laughs) We record a fourth Bob Seska show podcast for the week. It's called The After Party. Friday After Party podcast is loaded with all the politics you want, while also including uncensored, completely obscene conversations about sex, drugs, movies, television, our personal lives, all the crap we can't get away with on the free show. 
So please help support this podcast by subscribing to our Friday After Party for just $10 per month. And bonus, you're also going to get two Shadow Docket shows every week included in that level of support. Plus, you got access to the comments under each episode. You got the community tab where you can post your own blog entries. Plus, you get access to the app and a whole lot more. That's bobseskashow.com or just click the all caps Patreon link beneath the logo at bobseska.com. And we thank you. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Bob Seska! Was there ever any justice for the families of the murdered workers? Uh, was there justice for uh, some of the wounded workers uh, who, yeah. who were able to get out of it without uh, being uh, outwardly killed? So what happened to them after all of this becomes public? Uh, eventually, um, you know, later, many months or a couple years later, some of them won uh, legal actions or you know, won some sort of payout or the, mm. the company went, okay. had a pool of money. Some of them got, you know, $10,000 or, or $1,000 or something like that. There was some small payouts that were made, but it's certainly nothing like you'd see today. Uh, and, you know, again, they didn't, company didn't admit they did anything wrong. It's just, you know, okay, let's make this go away. Um, you know, which they did. Uh, and as you said, pretty much in history, history books, it's gone away. Um, and um so which is you know kind of startling yeah um, yeah i mean when, given the fact that the footage eventually went public you would think that it would have echoed uh since then throughout all of this time we're we talking about eight and a half decades since that happened yeah so i i wonder why that hasn't been a point of discussion at all because we hear about so many other similar cases obviously there's bloody sunday uh, uh montgomery alabama of course 68 in chicago as we were just talking about kent state we almost yep. had another example of it in lafayette park for trump's bible photo yep. op that, that, i mean that could have yeah, happened yeah. right then yeah. and there so it seems like that kind of event, the Memorial Day massacre, would have had uh, a louder resonance in the time since it happened. Well, that was one of the, I guess you'd say, long-term uh, benefits of it, uh, is that it was so uh, stark and murderous uh, that yeah. it gave both uh, labor militants and police officials pause uh, that showing how it can get out of out of hand and of course it wasn't you know it wasn't a great day for the police even you know in terms of their reputation and everything else um so it's something both sides did not want to repeat and uh and as i as i say in the book in the film um this was the last true major uh violent uh conflict on this scale um in history uh, in the U.S. Uh, um, with anything approaching this death toll, you've had scattered yeah. strikes and, you know, things have gotten in the uh, miners, coal miners or whatever, but there, there are scattered where one or two people get shot or one or two people may may die and, you know, a few, you know, get, uh, get wounded or something like that, but nothing approaching this uh, 10 dead, 30s others shot and, you know, and 50 others, uh, you know, injured in beatings uh, in one, well, in, in five minutes, really. Um, so nothing has approached that. So it, right. even as that, if you just have a signpost and just say, okay, the what what was the last, you know, 
what turned the tide in terms of super violent labor police conflict mm -hmm. um you know there was this so that's one a positive thing that you, that that came out of it um i mean another thing was that there was the, the, the labor uh did get more sympathy from the general public uh these steel workers it took two years but they eventually got recognized um by the uh you know by these these steel companies they got the contracts you know more fair contracts mm. uh and labor in general as you know um uh did very well in the 40s and 50s and 60s you know this is a great period of um union dominance uh and so there was some you know public opinion uh helped turn in favor of workers and uh, they weren't right. all radicals and communists and um and so um you know so there was that but you know there's kind of a third kind of inter what i think is kind of an interesting um something i dug out that's you know in the book and the film which i think is kind of amazing in a way that in the aftermath of this and and the controversy over the film footage um various commentators in, in in Chicago uh and outside Chicago started calling for police vans to be and emergency vans and so forth to be outfitted with cameras which had never come up as something they said well, we need can we need police to have cameras to either prove their side of the story or kind of show yeah. what really happened it sounds and so familiar, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. So years later, we get body cams and dashboard cams. And and now um, every day, almost, you read about some sort of police beating or police shooting. And there's, mm -hmm. you know, let's see what's on the body cam or the dashboard cam and so forth. So uh, you could say that this incident also led to the, well, I wouldn't say it led to, but it was the precursor of raising the issue of you know, using film video footage to document violent confrontations between police and, uh, you know, average citizens. That's what I love about these stories you tell, Greg. Uh, this one, for example, you have the tip of the iceberg, which is the suppression of information uh, vital to the public interest. But there's so much more going on, mega corporations and the anti-union sentiment, uh, poli yeah. police violence and overreach, gun culture, solving problems with firearms. And then, of course, the, the primary uh, focus, the primary peg on this, which is the suppression of information, as I said. And, and it's just an incredible multi layered story that applies so well to many of the things we're observing now is that, that I assume that was part of your consideration as far as uh, uh, covering all of this, right? Well, you know, it's also the current uh, and, and and sometimes exciting uh, surge in union organizing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so we see it just, just this week with the writers guy, you don't think of the uh, Hollywood and TV writers as, you know, the, the huddled masses, you know, pretty white collar. Oh yeah. But, uh, you have this dramatic uh, walkout, and of course, uh, and, and we, we've seen, you know, uh, teacher strikes and and all that. Uh, but also, uh, I guess what really got me going was at least the, the encouraging uh, organizing in new areas such as Amazon and uh, Starbucks, and uh, all, all, all in the back in the back of the book in the appendix, we also chronicle some of these more current. Uh, you know, in, in new fields, you have this this organizing in in all these new fields today, besides the more more traditional ones. So mm -hmm. it's definitely a time of uh, people are reconsidering the value of unions and the opinion of uh, polls show that, uh, you know, unions are getting more and more public opinion support now. Yeah. Uh, so there may be a turning point. Uh, we're never going to go back to, you know, 60% of the workforce unionized, but uh, certainly it, there's been a reversal of late and that's, you know, that's, that's very exciting. Yeah. Proposition 22 in California, uh, Michigan repealed its right to work status. This is all incredible news uh, signifying this resurgence in the labor movement. And, and you're kind of riding that wave with this particular story in a sense. Uh, obviously it had a tragic ending, a sort of a cautionary tale, but it does fit right in with, as you said, this gigantic, uh, well, I don't know if it's gigantic, but certainly a union resurgence that's underway right now. Yeah. So it, it well, applies very what's well. Amazing, yeah. What's amazing about this incident is that, uh, nevertheless, until now, 
what what has gotten written about the most with you know labor and stuff? It's all stuff that's much goes back much further. You know, the Haymarket mm-hmm. uh, uh, scandal, the uh, Ludlow massacre. You know, Joe Hill. You know, I mean, it's like so people are kind of shocked that this happened in 1937, which is kind of starting more towards the modern age. You know what I mean? I mean, yeah. 1937 is more you know feels more like today and you've got talk about film footage and you know media coverage and uh, congressional probes and all all that kind of stuff uh which is is kind of more the modern age if you go back 150 years it's really a different world you know but yet this story has been covered so so little uh so i'm happy to be able to present it uh in the film and the book to see civilian bodies lying in the grass surrounded yeah. by these cops it just it's something that obviously uh, as we mentioned we've seen hints of uh, certainly the beatings in the south that took place against uh, black activists civil rights activists uh, kent state as as we were saying too uh, and and that is immensely disturbing it's just four college kids right but this is something that uh, as you pointed out we've never ever seen at this scale it's but it seems like these days with uh the divisiveness in our politics and so on seems like something like this is kind of a hair trigger away uh it seems like we could stumble into a situation very much like this and i imagine if it does happen it would be potentially way more than just 10 people yeah yeah i mean this I mean, you know, it, it could have happened on January 6th if police yeah. had fired. But, of course, that's a completely that's a completely bad analogy in the sense that the insurrectionists were coming, you know, were actually trying to invade the Capitol and breaking through police lines and beating police. So uh, if police had fired on January 6th, there would have been more, at least more cause for uh, for firing their weapons. But the, the, the Memorial Day massacre, there was nothing even approaching that. Yeah. Um, and, and it's, and it is, it's disturbing. I mean, to, to get to see the footage today, I, I am interested what people who watch my film, uh, what they will make now, now they've heard all about it here. And okay. Now you're actually going to see the footage, uh, some of it in slow motion. And I, I am curious what people will think, but I, I'm pretty confident they're going to be, be shocked. There's even a scene, which I think I've nailed, really nailed down for the first time, uh, thanks to these transcripts was uh, you will see in the footage a uh, an injured uh, worker being uh, taken to a car with a red cross sign on it this is a workers the workers had the police did not have any ambulances out there but the workers had a couple uh, large vehicles uh, to take away anyone wounded mm-hmm. and so they take this guy great obviously gravy wounded to this car to the car and that's what you see in the footage but from the testimony later we learn that this the uh, off camera police went to this car and dragged this guy out of the car and dragged him to a paddy wagon uh and on the way the tourniquet that the workers had tied around his leg uh, was slipped off, and so he bled to death. Oh, God. And uh, but this, that is not actually shown in the footage. You see the first part of the footage where it seems like the workers are rescuing this guy. So uh, that's the kind of kind of thing where, with the benefit of research and being able to write, you know, uh, at some length about this, you you kind of get to see the full picture. And it's even worse than what the uh, what the footage captures. So. I think the combination of watching the footage and kind of uh, hearing from the eyewitnesses and uh, and learning about the aftermath really puts puts it all together for the first time. Yeah, I was thinking about this too, uh, Greg. Is I was wondering if this happened today, how it would get covered through the lens of our political press. And my initial thought was the obvious one: okay, you know, the Red Hat Entertainment Complex, whatever you want to call it, they're going to be pro cop, and then the rest of us normals are going to be pro striker. But then I started to think about it. I said. You know, given the awfulness of this footage, and especially the scene that you just described with the tourniquet coming off and the protester dying as a result of blood loss and so forth, I'm not so sure 
I'm not so sure that it would be that cut and dry. It seems like the brutality of it would supersede our divisive politics. What do you think about that? Oh boy, it's 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 really hard to say. I, yeah. I do think that you you would get the, uh, I mean, assuming this kind of thing happened in a, uh, let's say, a political setting, but a setting where you'd sort of say, well, on one side you've got the law enforcement, and on the other you've got people who are like they being called uh, left wing or uh, mm. Antifa or whatever you want to say, people who are. Uh, people who are on the side of, uh, let's say, the liberal or left side uh, on some sort of protest. Could be an anti-war protest, you know. Yeah. Uh, that um, if it could be politicized, I mean, if it's a bunch of, you know, people out, uh, uh, just a, a crowd that's gathering for for some reason and they get brutally attacked and it really seems like, boy, this, this is just absolutely horrendous. Um, if there's any kind of political aspect to it, um, I think it would be politicized. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's sort of, again, it's sort of disheartening when you go back to this. Um, if you look at the press coverage uh, from the time then, and again, down to the Washington Post and the New York Times and so on and so forth, um, everyone not only buying the police argument, but basically they're basically what they're, what they're saying is, okay, we know the, yeah, these labor people, are militants. They're often radicals. Or there's, a, you know, some of them are communist influenced. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, um, even though, you know, so many hundreds of thousands had had won contracts, you know, from Henry Ford, you know. Yeah. So how 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 communist could they be, you know? <laughs> uh, but. Um, you know, that was, that was, you know, it was like, okay, these people on that side are, you know, radicals and, uh, you know, so they, they don't deserve the benefit of the doubt. And mm -hmm. I think that's the question when you come down, who gets the benefit of the doubt? And it's, you know, it's always been true that uh, in the media, you know, whether it's police officials, the Pentagon, uh, the White House always has gotten the benefit of the doubt. Uh, and so it, it's hard to, hard to believe that that, that would be you know, that would be different today. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, you know. it, it's, I got to tell you, Greg, this is an incredible story. I'm so glad that uh, that you in particular landed on this because this seems like it's uh, like a match made in whatever, match made in hell. <laughs> you know, well, Greg I, Mitchell I, covering I, I this kind of story, yeah. Yeah, and I hope you particularly enjoy, I, yeah. I uh, one of my great heroes uh, fortunately I was, was interviewed by and, and met him and, uh, was Studs Terkel, one of the great radio hosts of all time. Oh yeah. Yeah. He's a Chicago legend and, uh, it just, he happened to, he, he was not at the, the day of the massacre, but he was there the next day at the, at the site, um, at, uh, where there was a, the, the headquarters or a first aid station had been set up. And he was, he was a young man. He was an actor at the time in Chicago before he became, you know, best-selling author and radio host. And uh, so in my book, The Oral History, he's he has a rather prominent role. Um, he was even there, like I said, he was at the site the next day. And he has this, this incredible description of seeing all these bandaged, hobbling workers uh, and comparing them to photos of uh, the Matthew Brady from the Civil War mm -hmm. of uh, Post Gettysburg, you know, soldiers. Uh, it's just an incredible image. And then there was a great protest uh, rally at uh, at the Civic Center in Chicago a week later that Studs attended, and he talks about uh, you know what he saw there. Um, so I mean, he becomes a, a prominent figure in the book, and he's uh, like I said, uh, for a radio man like yourself, or I guess I should call you a radio podcast man. Uh, <laughs> I'll take it. Uh, Studs is like uh, one of the heroes of the century, or, or should be. Yeah, yeah. So I'll be curious. Your curious what your reaction will be. Yeah, I can't wait to see the whole thing. I've only seen the trailer uh, at this point, and uh, I will definitely check this out. The book and the documentary are called Memorial Day Massacre, Workers Die, Film Buried. The book is out right now. i got a link in the description of bobsuska.com. Just click this episode dated 5-3-23. Scroll on down, and there it is. And, of course, the documentary premieres on PBS KCET in Los Angeles on May 6th. 
It's a few days from now, as well as online at pbs.org. You can check your local listings after that. Greg and his producer, Lynn Goldfarb, uh, make the best documentaries. These are just incredible pieces of work. History that you've never heard of before. Must-watch events. Thank you so much, my friend, for getting the word out about these lesser-known chapters in our history. It is absolutely crucial to uh, get a better understanding of where we come from and that not everything is exceptionalism, is it? Yeah, well, Bob, thank you for that. But I just want to make one point is that this... uh, everyone everywhere in the country can view this film yeah as you mentioned via pbs.org uh starting saturday night to sunday uh pbs apps or even if you want to go to the kcet site that's the major station in la the kcet site will be streaming it and it'll be up for many weeks so starting saturday night or sunday everyone can view the entire film free of charge and uh uh and uh so i'm I'm happy to be able to provide that well congratulations on another outstanding uh, couple of pieces of work between the book and the documentary itself and i can't wait (laughs) i'm already starting to think about the next project greg so you got to let me know when it happens when it drops all right thank you bob I, i always appreciate being here thanks my friend good talk
why? Why? If you why? have T-Mobile 5G home internet, you might be hearing this why? a lot. Why? Every time your internet slows down during the busiest hours. Why? Why? Because your network gives priority to cell phone users. Why? why? Good question. Why not switch to Cox Internet with two times faster download speeds than T-Mobile 5G home internet during peak hours? Okay. Stop the whys and visit cox.com slash 5G home for details. T-Mobile prioritizes certain T-Mobile phone users over home internet users during times of congestion.